The reading this morning is from Genesis 6, verses 1 to 10. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. Then Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. The sons of Noah, who came out of the ark, were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, He became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves, will be he to his will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem, may Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died.
Oh, great. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. What a great pleasure it is for Jamie and I to be with you this morning here at Abide. It's a, a really nice time for us. We had a great day yesterday. We were so well looked after by Graham and Sarah. We had a, a lovely afternoon tea with some of the leadership group. Then we um, came back and had dinner with them. Uh, and then what a pleasure to be with you this morning. Great to be able to open the scriptures, to sing God's praises, to come before him in prayer, and um, to share a little of, from this strange passage, I think, in Genesis, certainly the second reading that Louise read. It's a little odd, isn't it? And uh, you may wonder why we're looking at it, but I, I hope it becomes clear as we go through. I did want to, before I get it, open the word with you, I wanted to bring greetings from um, St. Stephen's, which is the church where Jamie and I are from. Uh, we pray for you guys often and regularly, and, um, uh, but I wanted to bring greetings from the rest of the diocese too. You're a real encouragement to all of us, and uh, it's so, I'm so pleased that we're able to join with you this morning. We can't, because of the spread geographically of the diocese, we can't be together as much as we would like, but um, great to be able to do it. I think the last time I was with you guys was uh, a meeting in West Hamilton before you affiliated. Is that right? I'm getting a few nods. Hands up if you were there that evening. Yeah. I remember you grilled me quite hard. Uh, I was very impressed by it. I went back and told, spoke to Jamie and said they asked exactly the kind of questions you'd want. Because to join in that kind of way uh, as churches and to be involved in each other's lives pastorally in that kind of way, it's no small thing. So um, to have done it, you need to do your homework. You need to do a certain amount of grilling. And I felt suitably grilled that night. Uh, <clears throat> well, no, it was good. It was exactly right. Well, let me, um, if I may, open the scriptures. If you've got a Bible, please do open it up to Genesis 6 to 9, where um, I asked these guys what they've been doing. They told me you've been doing a series uh, in the book of Genesis, and you were up to the flood. So I said, okay, well, I can, I'll do something on the flood, but I'd like to do it a little differently. I'd like to do the whole flood. And to think not just about the flood. Often my fear when we think of the flood is we only ever think of it as a one-off event. We don't usually see it within the, the kind of frame of Genesis because most of us, I think, know Noah and the flood better from children's Bibles than the Bible. We, it's such a kind of common story, isn't it? It's right up there with Daniel and the lion's den and David and Goliath and those classic stories that we learnt at Sunday school which we kind of know from children's Bibles but not always how it fits into the book of Genesis or the whole scriptures. And so this morning I'd like to challenge us especially to think about what's the purpose of the flood? What did it achieve? And to do that, we need to do a little bit of background work. So um, I hope this will be helpful, but uh, we'll see, won't we, as we carry on. Let me pray and then we'll, um, uh, we'll think. Heavenly Father, as I said, what a joy it is for Jamie and I to be able to join our brothers and sisters in Christ here at Abide. And uh, such a pleasure to sing of your praises this beautiful morning. Such a pleasure to come before your throne in prayer. And such a privilege to open your word and have you speak to us. And we pray, Lord, that this morning as we study your scriptures, that they wouldn't just be words on a page, but as your Holy Spirit works within each of us, we would hear your voice, we would trust your voice, and we would seek to live in the light of what you have to say to us. And Father, as we look at a, a passage which is in some ways so well known, the story of Noah and the flood, I pray that this morning you might give us fresh eyes, that we might see things we haven't seen before, and that they might change us and challenge us. Lord, you know each one of us this morning. You know our hearts, you know our lives, you know what we're facing right at the moment. Uh, you're the great physician. Please work in each of us individually and corporately as a church family. 
We pray that none of us would be the same after our time together this morning. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well then, as I said, because I'd like to kind of set the flood into the flow of Genesis and indeed the whole scriptures, I, um, I want to briefly recap what I know you've already done. You've, you've already looked at Genesis 1-5 to to get to this point, um, but I want to just remind you of what you've seen and then put Genesis 6-9 to in. In case you didn't know, the first reading that Louise read was the beginning just before Noah and the flood. The second reading, which was the strange one of Noah getting drunk and being in the tent with his children, is right at the end of the flood. So we got the bookends this morning. Didn't think it was right to read three whole chapters. Thought that might be a little bit too much. So we just read just immediately before the flood and immediately after. But we saw the beginning of both Noah and the end of Noah. If you remember the last verse that Louise read was Noah himself dying. So let's put... Genesis 6 to 9, just in the context of the whole of Genesis. You guys have been looking at Genesis 1 to 3, so you know this better than I do, but Genesis 1 to 3 is so important in the teaching of the scriptures. We see the incredible creation of God, that this world that you and I live in and the lives that we have are not just cosmic accidents. It's not just random fluke that all this beauty is around us and that you and I exist. We're not just molecules and water and those sorts of things. Everything has been made deliberately by the hand of a creator God. And that's such good news. It means that our lives are not just accidents with no meaning. It means that if we were just a product of an impersonal evolution which began with an accidental Big Bang, in the end nothing means anything. Our lives are hollow and there's nothing more than the here and now. But because this world, this universe, human beings are the product of a purposeful creation by our God, it means there is meaning. There's more than just the here and now, which is great news. And when you read through Genesis 1-3, to God looks at his creation, as you know, and he saw that it was good. In fact, he says it's very good. Which always brings us to the question, well, why is that not the case now? Today, this world that you and I live in, although there's some beauty to it and some wonder to it, I couldn't believe the view I was seeing yesterday from the the, the Corbin's house, uh, there's some beauty to it, but there's also some difficulties in this world. You and I see pain and loss. We experience death and injustice. We feel inequality and hurt. We see evil. We see not good. So what went wrong with God's good creation? The creation that he made and looked out upon and said, it is very good. And this is not just an academic question. People will often ask this of Christians. How can you believe in a good and powerful God when we live in the middle of his creation and there's so much that's not right with the world? Well, it was Genesis 3, as you looked at that, I'm sure, that told the answer to that. It told the story of how the world changed from the good creation of God to the one that you and I live in now, which still retains some of the beauty and some of the wonder, and yet so much pain and difficulty. Because in Genesis 3, you you see the first sin, Adam and Eve, what they do. And what they do, what they did in that first sin is very important. They didn't steal an apple. That's what sometimes people think was the first sin, right? They think it was just stealing an apple. It wasn't. It wasn't even an apple, was it? What was it? The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't an apple at all. Uh, but it was more than just breaking rules. Sometimes people go, well, it was just one broken rule. Why is it so bad? It wasn't just one broken rule. Uh, sin was much more. Adam and Eve did some terrible things. They doubted God's word. 
did God really say? That's the first temptation, to doubt God's word. They doubted the, the one who'd made them and given them everything. They then doubted God's judgment. God had said, surely you will die. The serpent said, you will not surely die. And they, they believe incredibly the voice of the creation instead of the voice of the creator. So they, they doubt his word. They doubt his judgment. Then the serpent does another thing. Um, he doesn't want you to be like us. So now Adam and Eve are doubting that God wants the best for people. And so what it is, it's not just a breaking of the rules that happens at the fall. It's a total rejection of their creator. They doubt him in every single way. And they end up turning their backs on him and basically wanting to be God themselves. That's the essence of sin. And that's still the heart of sin today. It's not just breaking kind of neutral words. It's turning our back on the one who's given us all things and kind of thumbing our nose, waving our fist. It's us ignoring the one who's given us everything and saying, I can't be bothered with you, I don't trust you, I don't believe your word or judgments, I don't think you want the best for me, and I'll rule myself. That's kind of the heart of it. So the cause of the fall, the thing that changed everything from the good creation, the cause of the fall was sin. Now, flowing out of that one action were the devastating consequences. And there's lots of consequences, and I'm sure you looked at them as you went through Genesis 3 and 4 and those kind of things. But I want to give you four key consequences this morning of the fall, because I think we see it play out in Noah and the flood. So four key consequences, four things that went terribly wrong once the fall happened. The first one, the relationship between people was corrupted. So before the fall, Adam and Eve have a wonderful relationship, trusting Loving, generous, kind, patience. And the symbolism of this is they were naked. What's the first thing Adam and Eve do once the fall happens? They cover themselves. They're ashamed now. And that symbolically is this picture of human relationships now now being broken, not what they were meant to be. So the first consequence of the fall is uh, corrupted human relationships with each other. The second uh, thing they lost is the, the good relationship between God and people was now corrupted. Before, God had walked in the garden with them. Now, he will not. They can't be in his presence because they've caused this problem in the relationship. So, first problem, relationships between people corrupted. Second problem, relationships between God and people corrupted. Third problem, they lose their safe, secure home. They're kicked out of the garden. Now, that garden had been a wonderful place. Think of the place that you love the most and feel the most safe it's not perfect because in this world there is no place like that anymore not since the fall they lost safe secure home Uh, we in Christchurch know as well as anyone you can't even trust the ground you walk on anymore for safety and security in this fallen world but they lost that home The fourth one that came in, fourth consequence, so broken relationships with people, broken relationship with God and people, the loss of a safe, secure home. The fourth one, of course, was death. Death now entered into human existence. Those, so you've got the cause of the fall, sin, then you've got these four consequences of the fall. And they are still the four things that people struggle with today in this world. These are the things that cause such pain and difficulty. 
isolation and separation from loved ones, relationships which we lose or that betray us, and our relationship with God. We, this world knows it was created for a relationship with God. And part of the misery of the world is those that aren't in a good relationship know there must be something more to life. They know they're missing something. This lack of a safe, secure home. And, of course, death is the thing that casts a shadow over everything. So you've got these four consequences from the fall which continue to be the difficulty. And, pa- and part of the way of reading the Bible is you could break the Bible up into three parts. Creation, good creation, fall, everything goes wrong. And the rest of the Bible is how do we fix what happened? How can God fix what went wrong at the fall until you get to the new creation? Part of the journey from the, the Bible is from the garden to the city, the, the creation to the new creation. But how can God fix the cause of the fall, sin, and all the consequences of the fall? And when you read through the rest of the book of Genesis, it gets worse. Instead of just a one-off action by Adam and Eve, you then looked at chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. What a depressing scene to see these brothers uh, live that way. But it kind of gets really bad in our passage. Chapter 6, if you've got your Bible there, just have a look at verse 5. God looks on the people of the world and says, People were wicked. Every inclination of the thoughts of their heart were only evil all the time. That's unbelievable. It's gone from sin, a one-off, to now being almost integral in every person and the way they live. This brokenness which had come is now terrible. Verse 12, all, all the peoples on earth had corrupted their ways. And then the flood happens. And uh, two things that really come out of the the flood, which are very clear to see, and I I hope we see them this morning. The judgment of God is real. The salvation of God always goes hand in hand with it. Got to know both those things. There There are some movements in Christian churches at the moment where no one really wants to talk about the judgment of God because it's seen as negative and uh, kind of harsh. And I have some sympathy to that because I think in days gone by, you kind of used to get hellfire and brimstone sermons, which were so much on the judgment of God, uh, you were left thinking that's all he was, and it's not all he is. But we've moved so far from that now. In some circles, we never talk about the judgment of God. The flood is one of the examples of the reality of the judgment of God. Now, there's some good stuff with the judgment of God. Uh, We've got a good judge. One of the problems of judgment in this world is there's fallible judges who make mistakes and who can be bribed or make wrong opinions or decisions. We've got a great judge. Uh, But the judgment of God is a a kind of sobering reality in, in in the flood. But it's not the only reality because hand in hand comes his salvation. This God who judges always gives people a chance to respond to his grace, to come under his protection. And so in chapter 6, verse 8, you see the, uh, it says, Noah found favour, that word can be translated grace, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So what we're going to see in the flood is his judgment and his grace and salvation. But I'm going to ask you today, what's the purpose of the flood? What did it achieve? Because one of the problems I think we have of it is it's such a familiar story. We stop to kind of ask the questions behind it. Why is it here? What did it do? Even many people that aren't regular churchgoers have heard of the animals going two by two onto the ark. That's how familiar this one is, the rain coming down. But that can be a curse, this familiarity, because we, um, we forget to really think about it. 
it's so familiar we sometimes stop to think, did the flood work? If it didn't work, what did it achieve? Why has it been recorded for us? So I want to get us thinking about those things this morning. So I want to take you very quickly, and it will be quickly, through a few of the details, just so that we can see some of the specifics here, and then I'll start uh, hopefully answering a couple of the questions. So if you've got your Bible, have a look at verse 14. Uh, We see specifications for the ark. This is not Noah was a good tradesman and he could build whatever he wanted. He's got specific measurements that had to happen. It's to be made of specific wood. It's to be coated with pitch inside and out. And it's to be built with specific measurements. And those measurements are huge when you work it out. Uh, It's a kind of matchbox shape. Um, In fact, the word ark in the Hebrew literally means box. So it's probably not the lovely kind of uh, picture that you see in lots of the children's uh, Bibles. And presumably that's because this, this boat, it wasn't built for navigation. It wasn't built for steering. It was just built to float uh, and to carry safely the, uh, everything on board. So that's the instructions to build the ark. Then Noah is told to take his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. So there's going to be eight human beings on this boat. He's also to take birds, animals, and creeping things of every kind with them. So this is chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Uh, A pair of each one, a male and a female. But it's not just a male and a female. That's of the unclean animals. In chapter 7, verse 2, it's seven pairs of every clean animal and seven pairs of every bird that flies. So some some people forget that detail, but it's important. There's even more animals on the ark than uh, sometimes we remember. He's obviously to take seven of the clean animals, I think, because it's the clean animals that will become the sacrifices and the food as they go forward. So they need more of the clean animals. Uh, Some people scoff the um, Noah and the flood story here. They, um, They mock the thought that that Noah's out there trying to catch all these animals, and how can you catch all the animals and bring them onto the, uh, onto the ark? He couldn't stand on the gangplank and go, here, wombat, wombat, come on, uh, or anything like that. But it's very clear from chapter 6, verse 20, the animals come to Noah. I never know why people doubt these things. If God can create this world, he can get animals on a boat, right? This is not a big miracle if God can create everything. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 5 is a a very positive statement. Noah did all the Lord had commanded him. Noah's being asked to do some strange things here, but Noah is trusting and obeying. The heart of the Christian faith, trust and obey. That's what Noah's doing. God has initiated salvation. Noah is trusting and obeying. Then God brings the rain. Because it's by flood that he's going to destroy the earth. And we're told in the uh, flood account that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Sarah said that if we'd been here last week, it was monsoon kind of thing that we missed out on. Not compared to this. 40 days and 40 nights. And in chapter 7, verse 21 to 23, we read the devastating results. Everything except Noah and those with him on the ark perish. Uh, This is serious what's happened, and we need to see it that way. That's the outcome of the flood, destruction. Uh, People argue today over whether this really was a global flood over the whole world or just a localised one in the kind of the experience of those there. I take it when you read uh, Genesis 6-9, to you have to take it as a global flood. That's the way it's portrayed. It's the only thing that makes sense of the verses. 
It's stressed all through these chapters that this is a total judgment except for the ark. Well, at the end of those 40 days and 40 nights comes the next part of the story I'm sure most of us remember. Uh, Noah releasing birds to see when the, the, the floods have subsided. And soon the waters do recede. And in chapters 8, 15 to 17, God tells them and all the animals to come out of the ark. And basically there's a mandate like given to Adam and Eve given. Go forth and increase in number. Exactly the same thing that was said to Adam and Eve, Noah and his family are now to do in this kind of new creation after the flood. And God then establishes a covenant with Noah and with all life on the earth. A covenant is like a contract, it's a deal. Um, And God establishes this covenant in chapter 9 verse 15. I'll read it out if you've got your Bible there, look at it. I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it, and I will remember this everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. This is another reason I take it the flood was global, because there have been other floods which have uh, caused devastation and destruction in local areas, but there's never been another flood like the flood with Noah. Now, Sorry for the rush job, but that's, that's the flood in a nutshell. I've told you everything you already knew, so apologies. This is where most of the children's Bible stories of Noah and the flood finish, and often where many of us stop thinking when we think about Noah and the flood. But the story doesn't end there. The story of Noah and the flood doesn't end with the end of the flood. It ends with the end of Noah. And so I had read to us by Louise the strange story at the end of chapter 9 about Noah and his sons. And I did that very deliberately because I think this strange story at the end is one of the keys to understanding the whole Noah flood issue. It's a very sad story. Uh, In chapter 9 verse 21, the first thing we see is Noah get drunk and lie uncovered in his tent. And this comes as a, a bit of a shock. Because up until this point, Noah's been fantastic. Up until this point, Noah's behaviour has been impeccable. Uh, he's been the one described in chapter 6, verse 9, as the righteous one, blameless, walking with God. But here we see Noah act in a different way, in a way which I think we're supposed to see as shameful. Uh, he loses self-control, which is one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He gets drunk, and he lies uncovered in his tent. Then we're told that Ham... Strange name for a son, but especially when you could call him bacon. But Ham, Ham sees his father's nakedness and tells his brother. And it's clear when you read through it, Ham's done something not good. But it's not clear what it is. And it's caused a number of people to speculate and have lots of thoughts and ideas on what he did. Some get quite dark. And I I don't think there's anything dark there. I think what he's done is he was supposed to honour his father. He was supposed to protect his father, not let his father get into shame, like the other brothers do who kind of back in and cover him up. But Ham's almost taking pleasure in the shamefulness and the, uh, the mucking around of Noah. He should have protected him. And as a result, Ham's youngest son, Canaan, is cursed. Then we're told that after the flood, this is the last couple of verses, Noah lived 350 years And the account of Noah and the flood finishes in chapter 9, verse 29. Altogether, Noah lived 950 years, and then he died. And that brings to an end not just that strange little story of Noah and his sons, but the whole story of Noah and the flood. 
So what can we learn from it? How should it impact us? As I said a few moments ago, it clearly teaches the flood God's judgment and salvation. It would have been absolutely unthinkable back then that God would ever judge the world. But he did. Unthinkable for most of this planet to think that there will ever be a day when God judges the world. He tells us he will. But wonderfully, he always has a way of salvation for those who will hear him, trust him, and respond in faith. He did with Noah. He does on the final judgment. But what can we learn from it? What else? Because the most striking, the most surprising thing about the flood is that as drastic as it was, and it was drastic, wasn't it? You have flooded the whole world. You've destroyed everything in it. As drastic as it was, it changed nothing. Nothing. Have you ever thought about that? What did the flood actually achieve? It wiped out the, the earth because of sin and the consequences of sin, and yet sin remained, and the consequences of sin remained. Exactly the same afterwards, just on a smaller scale. The very thing that caused the flood remains after the flood, and you see it immediately. That's why the strange story of Noah and his sons in uh, chapter 9 is so pivotal, because it shows nothing has changed. Noah and Ham sin, just like we might have expected the people before the flood. Remember, he'd looked out on the earth and seen that every inclination of their heart, only evil all the time. But we think, well, there's going to be a good start now because Noah's a good guy and he's got his family and they're going to be saved and it's exactly the same afterwards. The cause of the fall, what did I say the cause of the fall was? Sin is alive and well straight after the flood. So are the consequences of the fall. Remember I said the cause of the fall is sin and then there's four key consequences. We see all of them straight alive and well straight after the flood. What were the four? Ruined human relationships, ruined relationship between God and people, no safe, secure home, and death. We see all four of them immediately after the flood. The breakdown of Noah and his son, the cursing of Canaan, all show that human relationships are still frail and fraught. They're still exactly the same as they were before the flood. The relationship between God and humans is still frail. Now, sometimes people go, no, no, he saved them and uh, he gave them a, the covenant with the rainbow. And there's truth to that. There's still, the, the relationship's not as bad as it could be, but there's still a problem with it. Remember what the, the sign of the um, rainbow is? It's to remind God not to flood the earth again. If I um, came home from work one day and said, listen, Jamie, I've decided every time I hear the microwave bell ding, that's reminding me not to destroy you completely. You'd probably wonder about our relationship. That's the sign of the, the rainbow for God. It's clear that the relationship has not been fixed yet. So the relationship between people and people is still corrupted. The relationship between God and people hasn't been fixed. The new creation after the flood is clearly not as good as the garden. We see some of the same instructions go forth and increase. But now, if you have a look at chapter 9, verse 2, God says fear and dread will fall on the creation because of humans. In chapter 9, verse 6, God makes provision for when murder is going to happen. 
he knows that this is not a safe and secure place. And then the last verse of our passage is Noah dying. Death still remains. So the cause of the fall is still there after the flood. The consequences of the fall are still there after the flood. It's still exactly the same after the flood. There's no change except it's on a smaller scale because there's only eight people involved. So if nothing has changed after the flood, the cause is still there, the consequences are there, what did the flood achieve? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What did the flood do? It didn't work. God saw that the world was sinful, so he judged it. And yet at the same time, straight afterwards, we see Noah and Ham sin, and that situation is exactly the same, only on a smaller scale. The flood didn't work, so what does it teach us? It teaches us we need Jesus. That's what the flood does. It teaches us that a solution, even as drastic of washing the whole world clean and starting with one human being, cannot sort out the problems of the fall. It shows us that what went on in Genesis 1 to 3 was so bad and so difficult, there was only one way for it to be sorted out. And that one way was Jesus himself. Noah was called the righteous man. Even starting with a guy as good as Noah couldn't sort it out after the flood. That's how massive the problem of the fall is. To understand the Bible, the the, the kind of storyline of the Bible, to understand Christianity, we've got to understand how serious the problem is to work out how wonderful the solution is. Sin and the consequences of it are so encompassing. The problems of this creation are so intractable and ingrained, so serious, not even the flood could sort it out. If we didn't have the flood, we'd, what would be missing? We'd, we'd wonder why God's plan for salvation has to be so huge, why it has to involve God himself becoming human, why it has to involve Jesus himself going to the cross and humbling himself in that way, why it's got to involve a new heaven and a new earth. We'd say, well, can't you just press reset God and kind of fix it? No, the problem is too bad. We might be tempted to think we could fix it ourselves. How many of you, like me, have have ever thought, it's the rest of the world that's causing all the problems? I'm pretty good. And if it was just my family and I, I think this world would be okay. No, it wouldn't. If it was just me and my family, we'd be terrible. Uh, And the, the story of Noah and the flood tells us that. It shows us why there was no other way to fix the problems of this world than Jesus. It shows us why on the the night before his death in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus came before his father with no one else around him and said, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And what was he praying? He was praying he didn't want to go to the cross. He prayed, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. If you were the father and there was any other way to save people, you'd take it. That option right then, wasn't it? There was no other way. Jesus was the only way for us. And the flood shows us that so clearly. God's plan of saving people. This wasn't a a failed attempt by God. It's not like plan A was the flood and then I'm not sure what to do. God knew it was only Jesus. But the flood shows us that nothing else can sort it out. The problems of the fall, the problems that you and I face and experience in this fallen world were so, so serious, not even a new beginning in this creation could fix it. 
Only God himself in the person of Jesus. Only his work on the cross and resurrection leading to a new heaven and a new earth would sort it out for us. The flood wonderfully shows us the power of the cross. The flood wonderfully shows us the grace and mercy of the God that you and I have. Which is why if our faith is well placed uh, in Jesus, it's where it needs to be. Because it's the only solution to this world. Why don't I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Genesis, which goes right back to the start and shows us foundational truths, things that we need to know and understand to kind of know and understand you and know and understand ourselves and know and understand your purposes. And I thank you for the way that the flood, with all its judgment and salvation, so clearly points us to the cross with its judgment and salvation and so clearly shows us the wonder of our saviour the one who could do what even the flood could not and father we have the great privilege of calling him today our saviour and our king of proclaiming uh, his truth to the world around us and being transformed into his likeness father i pray that you would give us an even deeper love for the lord jesus and an ever-increasing desire to serve him in this world We pray these things in his precious name. Amen.